Well, hello. hello. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to be together for a few minutes and focus on your word. Thank you that you've provided this to us. Help me to do this, God, uh, and open our hearts to what you have to say uh, and make this time a blessing to each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you um, for letting me uh, do this. Um, I know it wasn't your idea and that you didn't have any say in the matter. <laughs> but thank you anyway for still being here. <coughs> I'd like to take a few minutes uh, this morning and uh, spend the time talking about the last chapter in the book of John. John 21, in which Jesus says to seven of his beleaguered, grief-weary disciples, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. Now for me, I don't really need anything else. Like, I'm done. That's all I need. But since we do have some time <laughs> on, our <laughs> on, on our hands, um, I, I'll continue and I will read the chapter uh, actually in just a second. <clears throat> but before I do, let's get oriented. Uh, let's see if we can. So one of the things when you study uh, the book of John, and you look at the way it's laid out, um, uh, what you find uh, is that in its structure, uh, John t 21 comes immediately after John 20. <laughs> Come on, guys. Um, that's the best I can do, I'm sorry. <laughs> My son said, you gotta have a joke. <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> Uh, the previous chapter, John chapter 20, uh, begins with Mary Magdalene uh, before dawn on the third day after Christ's crucifixion, uh, making her way <coughs> to the tomb. And she gets there and she finds <coughs> the tomb is open and empty. Uh, and she is stunned uh, and uh, uh, befuddled and she turns and she runs and she goes and she tells Peter and John what she found, and they turn and they run uh, back to the tomb, and they find it open and empty, and they look inside, and they see the cloths laying where the body of Jesus had been, and they, um, the, the scripture says that they didn't understand yet that Jesus had to be resurrected, and John says, of course, he's the author, he says that he believed, but you get, the, you get this impression that, that they were just bewildered, and it says that Peter and John turned and they went home, they left, and there was Mary, weeping. And that's when she looked in the tomb and she saw the two angels, right? And they talked to her. And then she turned and found herself face to face with Jesus himself. He appeared to her. And he spoke to her and he reassured her. And he said, go and tell my brothers, the disciples. And she did. She went and she told them. Uh, and then that night, <clears throat> they were all together. Um, well, not all of them, right? Who was missing? Thomas. But they were together in a locked room, and the room was locked because they were afraid of the crowds, right, the mob. And Jesus appeared to them, and he spoke to them, and he said, peace be with you. And then he said, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And then later the disciples told Thomas, they said, Jesus came and appeared to us and talked to us. And you know what Thomas said? He said, very frustratingly to the other disciples, I'm sure, he said, I will not believe it 
until I get a chance to see and touch myself. And then the Bible says eight days later, he got that chance because Jesus appeared to them again in the room, but this time Thomas was there, and it's as, it's as if it was just for Thomas, right? And he goes to Thomas and says, see, touch my hands, see the nail holes, put your hand in my side where I was pierced. And Thomas said, my God and my Lord. And Jesus said, Thomas, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. And then that chapter ends with what appears to be really the conclusion to the whole book. But yet it's not because for some reason John tacks on 21 after that. Now, fast forward a, a few pages to Acts chapter 1 where Jesus has led the disciples now to the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> and that, of course, is the scene of his ascension. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, Acts 1 says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God during 40 days. So after 40 days, they're just outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives for the ascension where Jesus is taken up into heaven in the clouds. And so we know then that the events of John 21 take place somewhere between eight days and 40 days. Right? Make sense? <clears throat> There's something else I've got to tell you about this. The events of John 20 and Acts 1 uh, both take place in Jerusalem. Or in the case of Acts 1, right outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. Right? It's just a, a short walk away. But the events of John 21, as we'll read here in a sec, take place at the Sea of Galilee, 70 miles away. 70 miles away. So sometime between 8 and 40, these disciples, the seven that we're about to read about, journey 70 miles from Jerusalem to the Sea of Galilee. And then sometime after that, they journey 70 miles back to Jerusalem for the ascension, right? Okay. Here's John 21. It's a long passage. Sorry, bear with me. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee, by the way. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said, by the way, that's John, the author, um, said, it is, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. <laughs> the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they're not far from land, about 100 yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled 
the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. <clears throat> when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved from the, uh, following them, the one who also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that will betray you? John again. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that, the disciple, that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one to be uh, written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The word of the Lord. So three things. <clears throat> um, I, I, three things. <laughs> um, I'm going fishing. I blew it. And follow me. I'm going fishing. I blew it. And follow me. So first I'm going fishing. You know, <clears throat> if I tell you that I'm going fishing, uh, what it means is that I'm going to take a vacation, right? Um, I'm probably going to take some time off and go relax. Uh, but these guys, when they say, I'm going fishing, what it meant is, it's the same thing as me saying, I got to get back to the office. You know, I got to get my business rolling. <clears throat> I got to make ends meet. Uh, I got I to gotta fend for myself. I got to get back to work. And we know that because these guys were professional fishermen. In fact, they were in business together, at least Peter uh, and, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And we know this because in Luke chapter 5, three years earlier, right, uh, we have kind of a similar scene, don't we, with the no catching and then the nets that are full. Because in, in Luke chapter 5, that's where Jesus called some of these guys to be his disciples. Um, they were living life. It was normal, right? They were just doing business, living life. And Jesus showed up. Uh, and he borrowed Peter's boat um, uh, to, to sit in it and teach the crowds that were on the shore. And when he finished, he told Peter, uh, push out into the deep and let down your nets. And Peter said, teacher, uh, we fished all night. We got nothing. It's not even worth it. Uh, sound familiar? But then he did. 
uh, and you know the story, when he threw the nets out, there were too many fish to even bring in and the nets were breaking and he had to call for his business partners, James and John, to come and bring their boat and they filled both boats and they were kind of sinking and they made their way back to shore and in the meantime, Peter falls at Jesus' feet and says, go away from me for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. From now on, I will make you a fisher of men. And it says that when they got back to the shore, they, they dropped everything and they followed him. They followed him. And after that, we have three years of, oh my goodness, right? <laughs> three years of traveling with Jesus and miracles, healings, the feeding of the 5,000, confrontations with Pharisees and priests and demons, sleeping in the same room with Jesus, being with him and hearing his instruction, his teaching and watching him, right? Being a disciple. And they came to realize during that time that they were with the Messiah, the one who would change everything, the one who would restore to Israel the kingdom and who would throw off the burdens and tyranny they thought of Rome, right? And so they had it all planned out, right? They had really, <laughs> they had really come into a good situation. They were hooked up with the king of kings and they had a plan. They thought they knew how life was gonna go until it didn't, until everything fell apart, until Jesus, whom they had, what, hitched their trolley to, uh, the basket into which they put all their eggs, you know, all of that, right? Was suddenly brutally and unjustly murdered after the trial of a kangaroo court and these accusations that resulted in his crucifixion by the Romans. And now he was gone. He was gone. And everything that they thought was going to happen and everything that they thought made sense about the way their life was going to go was suddenly just lost and it had gone th through their fingers and now they didn't know what to do. And so when you think about their trek back to Galilee from Jerusalem, to me it makes perfect sense. By the way, you know, our passage says this was the third time, right? And so we know the first two times that was within the first eight days, right? And so this is sometime after that. We don't know how many days. <clears throat> but what we do know is that on this occasion, they had not seen Jesus since that eighth day, right? Because this was only the third time. And however many days it was, he wasn't around. And they didn't know what to do. And they were lost. And so what did they do? They packed up and they went home to try to make some sense of life, right? To try to regain normal. They went back, really, to the beginning, I mean, that wasn't their intention. Their intention was to go home, to try to figure stuff out. I know how this, how this feels, right? To just be grasping for some semblance of, of normalcy when, when things don't go the way you expect them to, right? And, and I could tell you a, a, a number of stories about why I know that. But you guys know that we lost Starlet last summer, right? And my kids are great, by the way. They are 20, 17, and 15, and they uh, love me and love each other, and we have been so blessed by the Lord in the nearly seven months since then. Um, and I won't speak for them, but I gotta tell you, um, when I turn around and try to do life, 
uh, and try to do family, it doesn't make any sense a lot of times, right? I'm okay. That's good. We're good. So, right? I turn around, I try to do that, and, and I reach for normal. I mean, it's like this desperate grasp for, for um, things to be okay, to f- try to find the rhythm that was there before, to try to, right? And, <clears throat> and so I make decisions and I do things that I think will accomplish that, but I come up empty every time. It's just like those nets They're desperate for there to be fish in the nets, for life to be like it was, but it's not happening. And I think it's because God doesn't intend for life to be normal, right? He intends for life to be all about and full of his calling and his purpose. And he intends for it to to require us in desperation to rely on him and trust him every step of the way and in every season of life. So they're grasping for normal, but normal is not what it's about. Now, there's something else about this I'm going fishing that I want to mention to you. And that is, I, I, I think that when, when Peter said I'm going fishing and the other guy said, yeah, we're going with you, I think that they thought that they were making a decision and taking an action that didn't have anything to do with Jesus. And therefore, they thought that Jesus didn't have anything to do with what they were doing. Right? They were doing what we do. They were compartmentalizing. You know, I'm a child of the 80s, and so um, some of the things that I say all the time, uh, I have to admit, come from Seinfeld. And so... There was this episode in Seinfeld where um, uh, they introduced uh, this term uh, that we all now use, right? Worlds colliding. You know that term, right? That came from Seinfeld. And it was all about how in our lives we have different worlds that we live in. We have our work world and our friend group world and our, you know, uh, uh, you know whatever. In our case, our church world and our um, school world. And, you know, those worlds have different people in it and they might even have different us's in them maybe, right? And, and what we want to avoid is those worlds colliding. Some of my worlds were colliding on Friday night when my kids got some people together for, uh, for a birthday celebration uh, for me. And, um, and there was people from different eras of my life and different sections of my life, and they were all together. And I looked around, and I thought, ah, my worlds are colliding, right? Okay. And, and so it's because we have this natural tendency to compartmentalize, don't we? to think, you know, this part of my life really doesn't have anything to do with this part of my life, and what happens here, logically, shouldn't affect what happens here. And I want to suggest to you that we even do this with sin, right? We feel like that even though I got a problem over here, there's really no logical reason for that to affect what's going on over here or in the rest of my life. And sort of like the virus software on the computer, we think that we can quarantine it so that it, right, is just isolated and doesn't affect what's going on over here. We compartmentalize. Guys, I want to tell you something. That's a fiction. 
there is no such thing as compartmentalization in life. Why? Because we belong to God, and God doesn't have compartments. He owns us. And every little aspect and every little piece of who we are and of our lives are connected to every other aspect and every other little piece. Why? Because we're his, and he's got it designed. Look at our, our, our passage from the, from the praying the scriptures today, right? Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar off. I know that, what's not, it's not in the bulletin. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Where should I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say the darkness shall cover me, then the light about me be night. The darkness to you is not dark, right? The night is bright as day. The darkness is as light with you. Listen, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet, were, uh, when as yet was none of them. <laughs> Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. <clears throat> there is no compartment. There is no separate world. There's just me and God and every little piece of it belongs to him. And what I think I'm doing that doesn't have to do with him, well, he has to do with it and he has to do with me, okay? So guess what? No normal and no compartments. Now let's talk a little bit about, more specifically, about Peter. When Peter heard that it was the Lord and he realized that it was Jesus, I think it's funny, the apostle John is writing this book, right? And he, he thinks that he's the one who told Peter that it was Jesus. He sort of takes credit for that, right? But come on. They didn't catch anything. Somebody told them to put their net in the water and all of a sudden they had a net full. You don't think Peter knew it was Jesus? He dove into the water and he worked his way to the shore ahead of everybody else and when he got there, <laughs> he got out of the water and he stood on the shore and he found himself being warmed by a charcoal fire and Jesus was nearby. And it doesn't really say this, but I can't imagine that <clears throat> that Peter wasn't immediately reminded of the last time that he was in front of a charcoal fire with Jesus nearby. It's described uh, earlier in John, in John 18. And it was in the courtyard of the home of the high priest. And Jesus had been arrested and bound and was being interrogated. And Peter had followed at a distance. And he was in the courtyard in front of the fire with some others who accused him of knowing Jesus. And we know the story. He denied it. And then they said, no, but I'm sure that you were with him. Your accent betrays you. And he said, no, I don't know him. And then again, they confronted him. And he called down curses on himself and swore that he did not know the Lord. This after he had told Jesus, no way, Lord, would I ever deny you. Even if all these others 
deny you and forsake you. I won't because I love you more. And then he blew it. He utterly and completely, thoroughly blew it in exactly the way that Jesus told him that he would. And then the rooster crowed, and Jesus turned and looked at him. And he ran away. That's how close they were. And he ran away and wept bitterly. And now, here he stands, three years later, having lost everything, including Jesus, he thought, on the shore in the glow of that same charcoal fire. By the way, that charcoal fire is described, as best I can tell, only two places ever. Described as such, a charcoal fire in John 18 and John 21, right? That's because Jesus intentionally put that charcoal fire there to talk to Peter, right? I mean, not, not to rub his nose in his sin. That's not the point, right? That's what we do to each other. This is Jesus we're talking about. Because that charcoal fire now had breakfast on it, right? And it came with an invitation from Jesus himself to enjoy his hospitality and his gentleness and the warmth of his fellowship and his friendship and his forgiveness and his acceptance. Do you see how he's redeeming that symbol of Peter's total failure, right? He puts, he puts breakfast on it. And as he broke the bread and as he gave them the fish and the rest of the disciples came up on shore, there was no way they weren't thinking about what happened when he fed the 5,000, right? And there's no way they weren't thinking about what happened in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed when, they served, when he served them. And there they were back with him and there was a fire and there was breakfast. And Peter is confronted with his failure. Now, you know, Peter was excited to see Jesus, that's obvious. But there's no way that he thought at this point that he could be a witness in the way that he envisioned it before. Right, can you not imagine that having denied Jesus, having utterly blown it, that he felt like he had forfeited his calling to be a witness for Christ? And yet Jesus comes to him and says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes. And he reiterates the calling, doesn't he? He says, feed my sheep. And he asked him a second time, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, I love you. And he says, tend my sheep. And then he asked him a third time, just a third time, drawing the poison of that sin out of Peter and throwing it away by unwinding and undoing the three denials that had happened around that previous charcoal fire. Three times he was able to declare his love for Jesus and three times Jesus reaffirmed his calling and then he said, follow me. You see, forgiveness is wonderful, but I think that we have, as wonderful as that is, almost like a small concept of forgiveness because it's not just forgiveness, guys, it's redemption. You know, Jesus could say to Peter, I died for those sins, they're forgiven. And that's beautiful and wonderful. But he goes beyond that and he recharacterizes Peter's history. He takes his redemption and he weaves it into his history and he takes that horrible failure that surely is 
infecting every aspect of who Peter thinks that he is, and he redefines it and redeems it and makes it part of a beautiful story of grace and redemption that now it launches Peter into a ministry for the kingdom, into being a witness for Christ in a way that he never could have been before. Peter thought that his sin defined him, that his big sin defined him. But it's not our sin that defines us. It's not our failures that define us. It's Jesus that defines us. He's the one who tells us who we are. You know, we can compartmentalize, right, the little sins and try to quarantine them off. But in Peter's case here, this one was so big, there was no way, right? There was no way he could quarantine it, compartmentalize it off. And so he did what we tend to do with something that's too big to quarantine. He just gave into it and probably figured that it defined him, that it was, that it was who he is, right? But Jesus comes along and says, that's not who you are. Here's who you are. And then he takes what we thought was gonna define us and he recharacterizes it, redefines it, and redeems it. And now that charcoal fire is not a symbol of his failure, but an indication of Jesus' love and, and, and gentleness and forgiveness. And it reaffirms his calling. He says, follow me. So follow me. You know, when Jesus first said those things, to Peter, when, when the follow me happened the first time, Peter surely thought, wow, this is a great opportunity. I better get this right, you know? I gotta make the most of this opportunity. And that three years happened, and boy, was it an opportunity. But what happened? He blew it, right? He blew it, and he felt like follow me no longer belonged to him. But now we have follow me the second time. And think of how differently that follow me is interpreted now, right? Think about what following Jesus means to Peter now as compared with what it must have meant at the very beginning when he thought it was a good opportunity that he needed to make the most of. Because now he had utterly blown it and forfeited it. And yet there stood Jesus saying, follow me, follow me, right? That calling to be a witness for Jesus had not faded. It was not being discarded. It had not been forfeited. In fact, it was stronger than ever. And Jesus had taken everything that came since the first follow me to the second follow me and had turned it into a launch pad of redemption and forgiveness so that Peter now was following Jesus, not because he was making the most of it, but because Jesus had made the most of it, because he had done it. And he said, follow me. Listen, guys, if you are here today and you don't know Jesus, if you haven't placed your trust in him for that forgiveness and put yourself in his hands for your future, then what I want to tell you is that you're not here by accident because there is no compartment, right? And there is no uh, um, quarantine, right? You're here because it's part of his plan 
to draw you to himself, right? And you may think you just decided to come to church. But every part of your life, he's involved in. And so I would just suggest to you that you're here because he's drawing you to, your, to himself and he's calling you. And so I would encourage you to embrace not just forgiveness, but redemption. Because he will weave his redemption into your history and he will use it as a launch pad for his calling for the rest of your life. And then eternity with him in glory, with forgiveness. And I would also say if you're here today, Christian or not, and you think for some reason that your failures are the things that characterize your life, and that's what says who you are, that Jesus says otherwise. And he's the one who decides when and how the fish get into the net, right? So it's not about the fish, it's about him. And he's telling us to turn and face our compartments and the big sins that we think define us because he's going to redeem them and make them part of his wonderful story of grace and redemption to launch us into the witness that he has for us to be and then eternity with him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for a charcoal fire. Thank you for your hospitality and your invitation to come and have breakfast. Thank you for what that means. Thank you for the forgiveness and the gentleness and the love that is all wrapped up in that invitation. Lord, I pray that you would draw our hearts to yourself now, that we would undo the compartments, that we would let you define who we are, and that we would see and know and experience the redemption of your love. Be with us now as we continue to worship and as we go forward with this word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.